0: Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. On today's episode of the podcast, we'll be leading off with the A.A. Ron Block, hosted by me, A.A. Ron Fishman. Before I bring in co-hosts Lauren and Joshua, let's set the scene. We're talking about Derek Rose. In our interview earlier in the week, we talked with Sean Heiken of Bleacher Report and various other sites, who told us that Rose was the most important player on the team and most integral to the team's success. He's been struggling offensively, recording three straight games in single-digit scoring, but he did have a huge game in their win against the Thunder on Wednesday night, dropping 29 points, seven assists, and five rebounds, and he scored 10 points over the last three and a half minutes. It was an aggressive vintage Rose that we're used to seeing, and I'm sure the Bulls were happy about that. The great performance, though, comes amid rumors, particularly from ESPN's Brian Windhorst, that Derrick Rose and the Bulls may be parting ways in the not-too-distant future. Lauren, starting with you, can you imagine the Bulls trading this hometown kid who's done so much for them before his contract
1: expires
0: in two seasons?
1: Well, first of all, let me say that the beginning of this season has been really tough for Rose. He missed most of the preseason with that facial injury, and he's still dealing with the repercussions of that. He says sometimes he has double vision. Sometimes he can only see out of one eye. And you can't expect someone to play high-level pro basketball under those situations the tough thing for Rose is that there are still people in Chicago who look at him and expect him to be the same type of explosive, game-changing player that he was in 2011 and 2012 when he won the NBA NBA MVP. And I don't think he can be that type of player anymore, at least with right now with his health issues. And on top of that, he's making... 20 million dollars this season and 21 next season so even if the bulls were wanting to trade him i think it would be very difficult to trade and that said he's a hometown kid and i don't think they would let him go via trade i don't think they would be willing to do that
0: interesting He's had a history of of injuries and and missed so much time, really. And there's also been in-house disagreements between Rose, Rose's people, and the Chicago Bulls. So as I bring in Joshua, I'm curious. Is this too premature to talk about them parting ways? There's still two more seasons before his contract is up. I think it is premature. I want to go to Brian Windhorst's quote here. It says, the Derrick Rose breakup with the Bulls has begun. I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't know if it's going to be complete, but you can sort of see it. The team and the franchise have moved on to a little bit of a certain extent. The key words here being, I don't know, twice, (laughs) sort of, and a little bit of a certain extent. This is weak language. Um, If I was a journalist using these kind of words, I would not expect people to believe me. Maybe Derrick Rose won't be with the Bulls forever, but. He's there to stay, at least for the short term. As Lauren said, the contract is ridiculous. No one's taking that on. Um, He's a fixture in Chicago. It would upset too much, and it would be too difficult to accomplish trading him. Great points. Yeah, it would be hard to get fair value for him. I I think um, everyone would agree about that. I think it's also safe to say Brian Windhorst probably won't be on our show in the near future. That's all right. He he covers the NBA at large, not any specific teams, I believe.
1: (laughs) Can I just add, I think more likely than trading him, I don't think this is likely either, but I think a possibility is that the Bulls could possibly buy him out after this season and use the stretch provision to spread out his remaining salary, similar to what the Nets did with Darren Williams last offseason, getting rid of his ridiculous contract. But as i said i don't i don't think they would do that either but i think it's a more viable solution than trading him
0: and potentially and I, i'm not sure if this was raised they could also just choose to not re-sign him and that would be tough not getting any value in return but it's hard to trade him really i think too um because of all the reasons that you guys stated about the front court the front court is so deep We talked about it extensively with Sean Hyken. Fred Hoiberg has essentially given up on playing Pau Gasol and Joakim Noah together. I want to get your thoughts on that. But first, a little more context. Over their first five games, they've averaged fewer than four minutes per game on the court together. So there it is. Lauren, I I want to ask you, do you think uh, Fred Hoiberg has given up too quickly on the pairing? Or does so much depth afford him to give up on it? And is Noah kind of past his time? And does it make sense that he's being phased out a little bit?
1: It's a familiar refrain on this show that too much depth is a good problem to have. But actually, I think in this situation, it is causing problems for the Bulls. When you have two guys, the caliber of Gasol and Noah, who you're resigned to basically never playing together, that just results in too few minutes to go around. It's limiting Noah's contribution to maybe around or less than 20 minutes per game, and he has dropped off in his performance the last two years, but we forget this guy was an MVP candidate maybe three years ago. He's a great passer. He's maybe lost a step on defense, but I do think that... Hoiberg has given up on that a little bit too early.
0: Yeah, and a very high energy guy that I, I guess he can make his impact felt from the bench with that amazing, infectious energy, but probably has a greater effect on the court. But great points raised. Talking about Doug McDermott, he got his first career start against the Thunder in a game that the Bulls won. It seemed potentially to be a curious decision by Fred Hoiberg given McDermott's defensive limitations, although he didn't have to guard Kevin Durant, of course. Tony Snell, whom we talked about with Sean Hyken as the starter, didn't start and didn't play that much either. More evidence that Hoiberg and McDermott are BFFs, or at least that Hoiberg's that giving McDermott more of a shot than Thibodeau did, who, who really wasn't a fan of rookies or letting them play much. Despite the win, McDermott's plus-minus was negative 14, I'm curious, Joshua, while Mike Dunleavy is still injured, who do you think should start between Snell and McDermott? Or do you think there should be a rotation potentially? I'm sure you'd agree that plus minus isn't isn't always necessarily a good indicator of how well some, a player is performing. Especially in one game, too. That's a good point. Right. This, the sample size is so small, and there are so many other variables um, to take into account. But who should start? I think probably McDermott should not, and Tony Snell, while Dunleavy's out, should be the starter because they have enough offense, and McDermott is not strong on the defensive end. They need to have someone in there who's playing some kind of defense, especially with Noah coming off the bench now. I agree. I think Snell should be starting. Speaking of their defense, most people believe, I certainly do, Sean Hyken does, that the Bulls will a defensive regression this season without the defensive-minded Tom Thibodeau at the helm for them. Fred Hoiberg does bring a dynamic offense to the table. So I want to ask both of you, starting with Joshua, realistically, will these improvements to the offense outweigh the potential defensive regression that we'll see under Fred Hoiberg? I'm glad you asked that, Aaron. I think the, the potential improvements to the offense definitely can outweigh the expected defensive regression. Let me just bring up the fact first that the Bulls' defense was not that good last season. As Sean said earlier in the week, the Bulls' defensive efficiency dropped out of the top third last season. Um, In the previous years under Thibodeau, they were um, 1-2 and pretty much all the time. So their defense probably will be middle of the pack, I'm guessing, but their offense is going to be significantly better. So overall, I say they're a better team. Lauren,
1: what say you? Josh brings up the point that the Bulls' defense wasn't that good last year, so their offense can improve enough to take care of that defensive regression. But if their goal is to make it into the Eastern Conference Finals or even out of the East, the addition of McDermott and Miritich to the starting lineup definitely helps the offense. But I don't think you can do that with a below-average defense.
0: Yeah, well said. You guys were great, as usual. Sean Hyken was
1: great. Special
0: thanks to him for appearing on the show earlier this week and allowing us to have this insightful Bulls discussion. That's the end of the segment. We'll be back with LLC Incorporated. Get your number two pencils and calculators ready.
1: This is our second segment, LLC Incorporated. We're about a week and a half into the season now, so I'm going to get the Twins' opinion on a few topics from around the league. First question, I'll go to Aaron on this one. What has been the most pleasant surprise for you so far? And this can be a player, team, whatever you want.
0: I have to mention the Portland Trailblazers, and I'll mention some of their players. First, they're 4-2 Great start for them. They haven't necessarily beat any great teams yet, but they lost four of their five members in their starting line Wesley Matthews, Lamarcus Aldridge, Nick Batum, and Robin Lopez, and yet they're still doing very well right now. Al Farouk Aminu, he's been a pleasant surprise. I've been raving about him for a while, how underrated he is, especially how strong of a rebounder he is at the small forward position. But he's really broad, his offense as well. He's making threes. He's scoring nearly 14 points per game. He's done a terrific job. C.J. McCollum, really can't say enough about him. I was high on him t- before the season, and we saw what he could do in the playoffs against the Grizzlies. But he's been really impressive. Over 20 points per game. He's getting assists and rebounds, just really filling the stat sheet. Mo, how could you be so heartless? Gotta love that guy, too. Mo' money, mo' heartless. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that addition, yeah. He had a down year a little bit in Orlando, was going through some injuries and fell out of the rotation with the Magic. But he's been great also for Portland. And I have to shout out my late friend, Will Seymour, who sadly passed away a little over a month ago. He was the biggest Portland Trailblazers fan, but... Um, regardless, uh, that's just cool that, that Portland's doing so well with such a big lineup change. And also the Detroit Pistons. They're 3-1, four games. It's a small sample size. But two guys I want to highlight are Marcus Morris and Andre Drummond. Andre Drummond, we all knew he was a beast coming into the season, but he was averaging about 14.5 rebounds per game last season. Now he's up to 20 rebounds per game. Seven and a half offensive rebounds per game. And his offense has t- been taken to another level as well. A lot of those are putbacks, granted. But still, he's now around 20 points per game, 20 rebounds. Just the improvement is incredible. Who knew we'd see it so much um, from a guy who was already putting up big stats? And then Marcus Morris, out of the shadow of his twin brother, Mark Heath, Not only is he scoring, he's shooting well from beyond the arc, and he's playing significant minutes, nearly 39 per game, and he's rebounding decently as well. So those two teams and those particular players I highlighted have been pleasant surprises for me. And I think some of them will regress a little as the sample size gets larger, but McCollum particularly, I think he's going to have a solid season. And that team needs him to score a lot. So I'm looking forward to monitoring that situation.
1: Both great picks, Aaron. Josh, I'll ask you sort of the opposite question. Who in your mind has been the biggest disappointment so far?
0: I'm pretty disappointed in in the Grizzlies. They're 500 um, in their first six games, but they're supposed to be an amazing defense. They've gotten blown out by the Warriors. I know the Warriors are the best team in the NBA probably, but they lost by 50, and their defense is not showing up. The Pelicans also are 0-4. Anthony Davis is, is playing like garbage so far. I know they have a new coach and a lot of injuries, but these Southwestern teams are really struggling. Even James Harden with the Rockets shooting around 30%. I'm shocked by, by the Southwestern struggle life so
1: far. Great point, Josh, on all those teams. Three Southwest teams in your answer that's been a really disappointing division Uh, staying in that same vein right now at the time of this recording there are four remaining teams who have yet to record a win the Sixers Nets Pelicans and Lakers now two of those teams are playing each other tonight so this will be a little bit out of date by the time it comes out but Who in your mind is the worst out of those four teams, Aaron? The
0: Lakers, and I'm not saying
1: they will be the worst. They
0: definitely will not. They're going to improve. At this point, I'm saying the Lakers. They've lost home games to the Nuggets and Timberwolves, the two teams that we thought would be the worst in the West. They're 0-3 at home also. Their defensive rating is 113. They're allowing nearly 117 points per game. They can't defend to save their life. It, it's, it's just brutal. No single Laker averages more than 2.8 assists per game. They're not sharing the ball. Only Jordan Clarkson and Nick Young are ma- making threes. That's okay, but the pr- big problem is that Kobe Bryant, D'Angelo Russell, and Lou Williams are hoisting them up like crazy. So they're taking all those threes. They're not really falling. They're getting blown out. They've lost on average um, by 10 points per game to teams that aren't very good, to be honest.
1: Speaking of the Lakers, I saw this great stat tweeted by Tom Havistro yesterday. Of the almost 400 minutes that Nick Young has played alongside Kobe Bryant, how many total assists do you think Nick Young has had to Kobe Bryant? Is it None. It's zero assists. He's never assisted him. Joshua, who's your pick for these the worst of these four teams? It's hard to argue with Aaron's answer of the Lakers as the worst, but I will argue.
0: Julius Randle and Jordan Clarkson have been bright spots so far, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a pass for now. But another team whose defense has been awful is the Brooklyn Nets. They can't really stop anyone. They're allowing a ton of points. On offense, it's a bunch of guys playing one-on-one basketball. Brooke Lopez is having an amazing season so far, shooting the ball. Thaddeus Young is shooting well also, but they're just playing one-on-one basketball, and they're they're not close in any of these games. They did have a close game um, with the Bucks, but in the final two minutes, they just completely crumpled. I also don't understand why Markel Brown starts for an NBA team. <laughs> He doesn't play that many minutes, but still, he he shouldn't even be on the team, probably. Bojan Bogdanovic um, was a was a great-looking rookie for the team last season. He do- probably doesn't contribute much on the defensive end, but they're awful. They're, they could be the worst team in basketball when the season's over. I don't think they will be, but... What's interesting to me is that the 76ers seem to clearly be the worst on paper. Maybe not, but... They have I would T- agree with that. They have TJ McConnell, an undrafted guard out of Arizona, starting a point guard. How often do you see that? Tony Roten, Robert Covington, Carl Landry, Kendall Marshall, and Joel Embiid, of course, are all injured. Nick Stauskas is playing over 30 minutes per game. It's interesting that they're not the worst team right now, but I agree they're not. I, I think it's, it's got to be either the Lakers or Nets.
1: Yeah, great points by both of you. I think the saddest thing about the Nets is that they don't even own their draft pick for next season. They traded it unprotected to the Celtics in that KG Pierce deal. Yeah. I agree that the Sixers aren't the worst team in the NBA, surprisingly, but that has a lot to do with the play of Julia Locafor, who's been a pleasant surprise. So, segue... There are a lot of people to choose from here. Who in your mind has been the most impressive rookie so far? Aaron?
0: I've liked what I've seen from Jaleel Okafor, but in my mind, it has to be Carl anthony Towns, the number one overall pick. He's playing less per game than Okafor, and he's scoring fewer points. But he's still at 14.8 points per game. He's grabbing nearly nine rebounds a game. But defensively, what he brings to the table has been a game-changer. The Timberwolves have a 95.8 defensive rating, and that's largely because of him. They were a very weak defense last year without him on the roster. He's only turning the ball over a couple times a game. He's just been very efficient and a well-rounded player. So I'm going with him, even though Okafor has done well. I do want to shout out a couple rookies, particularly Jerry and Grant with the Knicks, Miles Turner in Indiana. In Indiana. And Willie Colley-Stein with the Kings, he's been rebounding and, and playing defense, exactly what the Kings drafted him to do. So a lot of impressive guys. Moutier fills the stat sheet, but he's been too inefficient for my liking. And the one thing I want to add about Moutier, he's making threes, but he's shooting 23% from two-point range. He's got to work and improve at finishing around the rim and his mid-range game. Joshua,
1: what do you think?
0: I want to echo Aaron's sentiments on Karl-Anthony Towns. He's really transformed an awful defense to a defense that's looking pretty good so far, and he's been shooting really efficiently. But a guy that no one talks about, because he's technically not a rookie, he only played one game last season, so his rookie eligibility has expired. Julius Randle of the Lakers, he's on a team that's almost assuredly headed to the lottery but he's averaging 14 points per contest, over eight rebounds, over two assists. The lefty is looking strong on the offensive end so far.
1: Great points, both of you. Final question. Possibly the most exciting story in this early season is the success of the Golden State Warriors. They're currently 5-0 and with all five of those wins coming against teams that made the playoffs last season. When do you think, if ever the warriors will get their first loss. Joshua,
0: good question, Lauren. While the Warriors have started off their their first 5 games against all western conference playoff opponents from the season ago, their upcoming stretch is a lot more easier, a lot easier for them to handle. They have the Nuggets coming up at home, then they travel to Sacramento. They play the Pistons in Oakland, although the Pistons are 3 and 1, I expect the Warriors to win that game. Next, they travel to Memphis, a team that they've just demolished. Beat them by 50 a couple games ago. So so I can't imagine the Grizzlies giving them too much trouble. Then they play the T-Wolves and the Nets. Before the Clippers on the 19th, they play the Raptors in Oakland. I still think the Warriors win that game. I'm going to say the Clippers beat Golden State in Los Angeles on Thursday, November 19th in a rematch from roughly two weeks earlier mark it down on your calendar circle it that'll be a game to watch
1: Aaron Joshua says the Warriors lose on game 13 at the Clippers what do you think given how
0: dominant they've been to start the season I think that that's a good prediction I don't see them losing any of the games before then but it is the NBA so lots of surprises happen I I wouldn't uh, be surprised if the Warriors ended up losing earlier than that. I think the most likely scenario is that they do what Joshua said, start 12-0, and and then lose in Los Angeles to the Clippers in that 13th game. But on the very next night, they're hosting the Chicago Bulls. So that's a, a road home back-to-back. So if the Warriors are able to beat the Clippers to improve to unlucky or lucky 13-0, and I think that they'll lose to the Chicago Bulls on the next night. The Clippers played the Warriors really tight. They they blew a, a late ten point lead. They um, did, yeah, and that was right after the Warriors won by fifty. So and that was in Oakland. So so I I think the 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 game will definitely be competitive. We'll see if the Clippers can pull it out. And it usually is when those two teams square off. There is no love lost there. It, it's an exciting rivalry between the Warriors and Clippers. Interestingly, though the the Warriors have had the Clippers number of late, pretty much beating them all, almost all the time. Yeah, except the Christmas Day game last year, the Clippers won that one handily.
1: Yeah, it seems most likely that they're gonna their win streak is gonna stop on Game 13 against the Clippers. But as you said, and as KG says, anything is possible. That's our show, hope you enjoyed it. If you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss on a future show, you can email us at contact at onthenbad.com and we'll try to get it on air. As always, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at OntheNBAB. Thanks for listening.